Ghost Ship Radio Network. Sail onward. What's up, folks? Welcome to episode 25 of the Adjacent Hex Podcast. My name is Zach. And making his sacrifice to the dice gods before his roll is Doug. How's it going, man? It is going so great. I am so ready for spring, though. Oh, me too. It is. It, it was kind of nice today. 44. Meanwhile, it was but... supposed to snow all day. Oh, we, had, we just had a blizzard last week. <laughs> I'm, I'm just ready for... <laughs> I'm ready for spring. I feel like we start every one of these episodes with weather in New England. What Weather in New England. Yeah, wait 15 minutes type thing. Oh, oh. boy. So, well... Okay, this is kind of exciting. Okay. So, normally we, we start with what we've been playing recently, mm-hmm. but this caught my attention. So, the day after we released our last episode, episode 24, people need to check it out if they haven't already. For sure. Uh, but in that episode, we talk about games like Rising Sun and Lords of Hellas and Zombicide and, and just sort of the big Kickstarters, and if there were cheaper versions available... Would people go for the cheaper versions, or would they still get the premium product? Right, and the conclusion was rather inconclusive. Yeah, rather, and I think we both said we'd kind of still go for the bigger game, Mm -hmm. but we were curious. So actually, the day after that episode dropped, I came across the Edge of Darkness campaign on Kickstarter. Okay. So, I was looking at the number. There are two levels for this game. Okay. There are 25 hours to go. There are currently 4,570 total backers. Okay. And there are two pledge levels. A $60 pledge level and a $100 pledge level. Okay, so that's not too right? far, that's not too much of a, uh, a dispersion. It's not, not too different. It's not huge. It's not huge, but it is does almost double the price of the game. Correct. Uh, so the $60 is like the regular version. The $100 is the bells and whistles. You get all the minis and nice shiny plastic. Right, right, right. So before the show started, I asked you, out of that 4,570, how many people backed at the $60 level and how many backed at the $100 level? And your guess was 1,000 at the 60 and all the rest at the $100 level. Figuring that most people would be, you know, in sort of our, our inconclusive conclusion line of thinking, uh, that the, the bigger is better situation, especially mm-hmm. considering the low level of desperation between the two prices well turned out it was actually only 90 people 90 people out of 4,570 went for the 60 dollar and 4,278 went for the 100 dollar version that's less than two (laughs) percent that is less than two percent of people went for the cheaper version and now i don't know if that says what that says about the board gaming community as a whole, that might be more reflective of the Kickstarter crowd. Right. But, I mean, that was right on point with what we were talking about, and I thought it was just too good not to share. And because of that, you brought up, and I'll let you you, uh, take the lead on this one, the Batman Gotham City Chronicles. Yes, so uh, it's pretty well documented at this point that I am a massive Batman fan. And uh, at Gen Con last year, Alex and I were bopping around the... uh, sort of back alleys of Gen Con, the Gen Con uh, Expo Hall. <laughs> Gray market dice. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, we found this really cool-looking French-designed Batman game, and I was like, okay, I speak French, so I'm going to go up to these people. And, and 
turns out they spoke perfect English, English so I didn't need to use my French, but um, they started showing Probably off some off. of the minis, and I was like, oh my gosh, these are so cool. Like, I, As soon as this hits Kickstarter, I got to grab it for all in, just everything I'm worth. And I immediately texted uh, our, our friend John Waugh, and he was like, oh, this is so cool. You know, we got we to gotta get this. So Kickstarter popped up, and it's by the, by the people who did the Conan miniatures game. So I knew it was going to be a little pricey mm-hmm. to get the all in. And it, it turns out it's going to have two pledge levels. Uh, one is a 140 for the two base boxes and all the stretch goals. And that's it. The other one is the all-in pledge. It's at the $320 level. And that's literally everything, everything. Uh, you get the Batmobile. You get a bunch more scenarios. You get some expansion packs. You get more bits and bobs, extra dice, all kinds of cool stuff. There are, at time of recording, with just over a week left, 13,646 backers. Mm-hmm. Doug was a little bit more on point with his guesswork than I was. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I guess I guess three six four six. Yep, and and ten thousand at the uh, three hundred twenty dollar level. Basically, I was just lazy. Yeah. I did ten and then the rest. Yeah, just like I did, and I think that's yeah, kind of the easiest yeah. way to handle this sort of guessing game. Uh, turns out uh, his guesses were actually pretty on point. There are four point one four point eight one five thousand backers at the low level, and uh, a lot more uh, closer to the about, about seven thousand or so. At the $320 level, there's still a bunch on the, you know, $1 uh, just pledge so you can use the chat kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. make up your mind a little bit later on in the campaign. But it's, it's interesting that, that that level of difference in this Batman Kickstarter is nowhere near as significant as the one for Edge of Darkness. Well, and and that's actually why my I think my guess was a little closer was just because the difference between sixty and a hundred dollars financially isn't that big. It's not that big. But the difference between tier one and tier two of the Batman game is another hundred and eighty dollars. Yeah, exactly. And that that's a significant chunk of change for a lot of people. It is. When I was making my guesses, I took that into account, and that's why I thought they might be a little closer in numbers than the uh, Edge of Darkness campaign. Yeah. So it's just some some interesting Kickstarter dynamics, and we're still obviously looking for people to uh, email us with their personal email, tweet, whatever, talk to us at cons uh, about what their personal spending habits tend to be, uh, and if they would be more inclined to buy a cheaper version of a game, uh, or sorry, a cheaper version of two games instead of one deluxe version of one game. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, just to, since you mentioned the cons, uh, just to mention, you and I are both going to be at PAX east coming up in april we sure are uh so you're gonna be there thursday friday saturday sunday i'm just there saturday sunday that's that's april april 7th and 8th is the saturday sunday so if anybody's around pax we'll be as per usual we'll be hanging around the greater than games booth um happy Mm -hmm. to chat adjacent hex or general gaming with you um (laughs) yeah we'll be demoing something yep i don't have my assignment we, we haven't gotten our assignments yet but you know okay. you know where to find us there so that's exciting so uh pax east yeah. 2018 all right so now we've talked we've done our kickstarter rundown and we've well no let, let's do one more kickstarter oh yeah that's right you take the lead on this so uh bopping around kickstarter especially after dropping 320 dollars on this batman game a bunch of our friends backed this game that i'd never heard of called brutality from Game Game Devastation. Game Devastation. They're out in California. I was like, this looks kind of cool. I love the art. It looks more like a Doug game than a Zach game, but it's it's neat and and the miniatures are huge and it just it looks brutal. <laughs> the you know, the pictures were great. Campaign was nice and concise. Had my attention. And the artwork is great on that. It is. 
And I was like, gosh, I mean, if I back this, I'm literally spending 50% of my Gen Con savings before Gen Con even happened, months before Gen Con even happens. <laughs> decisions, decisions. But as luck would have it, uh, courtesy of Frost from Game Devastation, Jason Hex was able to get our hands on a prototype copy. Prototype copy. Thank you very much, Frost, for, for that, for hooking us up. I just want to point out, before we get into yeah. it, that there, at time of recording, there's 13 days to go, and we're going to try and turn this one around fast. You should be able to hear it and still be able to back the game on Kickstarter. Absolutely. So, so yeah, we, we got our copy, and uh, we busted it out at Board Game Day last Sunday, and boy, did we have an absolute ball playing that game. Yeah. We, uh, yeah. we jammed, over the course of the five hours, we learned the game and jammed it three <laughs> times with breaks in between. Mm-hmm. It, it played mm-hmm. super fast. It The name brutality really fits with this theme. Every time oh you're hitting, gosh. it feels devastating, but you're still up. And you feel you yeah. feel like a titan. You feel like you're in the ring and bashing the snot out of each other. So I only got to play one of the three games. Brutal is just the perfect descriptive word mm-hmm. because every attack you delivered to somebody seemed just nasty. Every time you got hit, you felt the pain. Oh yeah. It was but it was so back and forth. Oh it is. Too. It's very it's yeah. it's a very swingy game. It stays very even. You and I were on a team in the second game together. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like the look on your face the first time your hero got hit <laughs> you it, you looked like you had just lost everything and it was just over. Yeah. And I, I'm just sitting there chuckling because I had seen a game before. I knew that on our next turn, you're coming back just as hard, if not harder. So in a normal game, it's always two on two, mm-hmm. right, that we saw. And so it's either a two or four player game. So the, you're either controlling two or one person. So when we did a two on two battle, we each had one hero. Yep. But we managed to pull off such an awesome combo all the heroes are asymmetrical. They have their own unique movement. They have their own unique uh, attacks. And some of them are different sizes even. They take up yeah. more than one space in the board. But you also get an artifact, which is a power that will change from game to game mm-hmm. because that's a card. And so you'll draw a different card every game. And so even if you play that same hero ten times, that one little element might change him every time. Absolutely. And like how you play them and that sort of stuff. But right away in our first round, we were able to use a relic card that we drew, my artifact power, and then our regular powers and our combination. We ended up like pulling somebody through a spike trap to damage them. Then I knocked them into you for a little bit of damage. Then you were able to just wail on them for two turns. I mean, it was utterly brutal and hilarious. I mean, we were laughing from turn one. (laughs) The gameplay is really simple. Basically move an attack and then do whatever your cards say. Mm -hmm. It's one of those simple mechanics, tough strategy type games. Mm -hmm. Cause I know you and I, and the other team was doing it too. We would sit there and like calculate, the best way to maximize our movement and our damage so we could hit somebody for the most amount of points. You know, what's interesting about that too is after you left, we played a a very fast game three. Okay. And they tried to play as quickly as possible. And what we learned is there are combos everywhere in that game. Oh yeah. There is so much raw power in those cards that you're, you're never without an action. The board is not yeah. very big, first of all. No, it's eight by seven. Something grid, like that, yeah. It's, it's a very small grid. And you can get from one side of the board to the other in as little as one turn, in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. So you're you're basically going to be in combat every step of the way, uh, unless you deliberately put yourself out of combat, which Kyle did to, to great effect in game one. I know there were turns I didn't get hit, or I, but I don't think there was a single turn that went by where there wasn't any combat at all. Right. 
Like, you were right in each other's faces right from the get-go. Correct. It's it's a very cool game. Well, because you, you had said, um, originally you had said it's like Mage Wars Light. Mm-hmm. In Mage Wars, we spent more time kind of developing our board and then attacking each other. Right. Which I guess is not the way everybody plays, but that's how we did it. But when I got there, uh, what I compared it to was Crossmaster Arena. Okay. It, yeah. It felt more like Crossmaster, just like a quick little skirmish game. And then and then I was thinking about it. It also kind of reminds me of a game from Greenbrier Games that came out. It's a samurai game called Yashima. Oh, I remember that one. Uh, we saw that one at uh, was it PAX a couple years ago? Two two years ago, I think. Three? I don't know. A few years ago. The guy tried to sell it to me, but I was broke at the time. <laughs> no, I really liked it. And I was sad I didn't have the money to, to drop at the time. But yeah, so it is it is it is just a in your face quick combat skirmish and we haven't mentioned the terrain i kind of mentioned the spike traps but before the game started the teams get to pick a piece of terrain to put out on the board and it can be a pillar so you can hide from ranged combat or it can be a a fire you know that damages people when when people go through it or you land on it my favorite one was the uh the catapult yeah i didn't get to play with the catapult but that's a riot (laughs) We kept knocking each other into it and catapulting ourselves into other traps and other combats. Nate and I were postulating that we could, you could put two catapults in and uh, just sort of catapult, you know, bounce people back and forth between the two catapults a bunch. <laughs> that would be awesome. Well, the thing when we started though, like I was spending a lot of time trying to, you let me put the tile down, and I was trying to figure out. Because I had a character who had a knockback power. Right. And I'm like, maybe I want to put it over there so I can knock the guy into it. Or maybe I want to use it for this, that, or the other thing. Somebody mentioned that you swap sides all the time. And it's absolutely true. This isn't like you stay on your side and I stay on my side. And we kind of ping at each other. It is in your face. People are circling around each other. People are using the environments to their advantage. They're using their cards. They're pushing people. They're pulling people. They're... I mean, it is just, it is, it's like a pit fight. It is just brutal. Yeah, I mean, and it is, it is very much a pit fight and, and it's yeah. so highly interactive. And honestly, if you, if you have the money back this game, because it is sweet, it's really, yeah. really cool. Yeah. It's doing pretty well on, on Kickstarter. It is, yeah. They've well passed their funding goal yeah. and they've, they've reached a couple of uh, stretch goals, but they've got a few more to go. Mm-hmm. So if you get the chance, go ahead and, you know, at least take a look. Yeah, definitely take a uh, look. Cause it, I mean, uh, even the artwork alone and the scale of the minis and every, everything's cool about this game. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed it a lot. I enjoyed it. I'm glad, I'm glad they were able to send that to us. Yeah, for sure. But, and, and like, I think you're right. I think it is probably more my style game than yours. And that said, I loved it. So, I mean, it's, it's got something for everybody. I'm going to say, I mean, it was just so tense of a fight too. Yeah. I mean, you, like, you didn't even want to leave. You like your wife was like, we got to go, Doug. We got to go, Doug. And you're like, no, 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 hold on, hold on. I got this. I had a, a, a script reading for uh, Vic Valentine at four, and I was just like, didn't want to go away from the game. But I made, every, I finished the game, and I made it to the script reading on time. Nice. So well done. Everything worked out. <laughs> but uh, yeah, really cool game. If you're in the mood for just the minis, quick. I mean, how long does it take to learn and, and play and... I mean, I mean, setup takedown was so fast, so fast. And I mean, you're, you're looking yeah. at maybe an hour to learn and play. Yeah. Like it was yeah. super fast, super fast. Speaking of everything working out though, I got to tell a quick story about Mansions of Madness. Okay. Is this second edition? It is second edition. Yep. We were bored at the store one day and, uh, cause our D and D game had gotten canceled. Nobody was there. Uh, we were supposed to get bad weather and didn't. That sounds familiar. Um, <laughs> so Alex runs out to his car and grabs Mansions of Madness and I'm like, yeah, all right. 
I got my iPad, let's play. So we fired it up and I just wanted to shout out some of, the, I, I had never seen, so I, I still haven't seen a lot of the puzzles in Mansions, even though I've had it since day one. Yeah, well, there's a lot in there. There's a lot yeah. in the box and there's a lot on the app and they keep adding more, which is great. Well done, Fantasy Flight. That's a really good use of an app. It is. To just be able to switch up puzzles is such a great thing to do. It's terrific. And Alex and I are, are deep in the bowels of writing a Call of Cthulhu campaign based on a, a very cool interaction we had at Gen Con last year with a with an Uber driver who was telling us he was giving us all the 1920s history of downtown Indianapolis. And Alex oh, and I cool. just kind of look at each other and feverishly start writing things down on the back of sales receipts because <laughs> it's all we had. And I happen to have my Sharpie on me. You always need a journal. I always have a, a writer's journal. Yeah, I think I think I had thrown my backpack in the back of the car. Uh, that was oh, the only reason yeah. I, would, I was just working on sales receipts. <laughs> there was a cool, um, they, they put in a letter number substitution cipher in the app. Say that three times fast. Letter number substitution, I can't. <laughs> you did pretty good getting it out once. I don't think I could do it. So I was like, oh boy, that is, I don't think that's ever, like it's such a simple puzzle, realistically. Mm-hmm. Once you figure it out, you've got it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I've ever seen it implemented as a game mechanic before. Literally, all I wanted to do was just shout out Fantasy Flight for just continuing to innovate an already innovative product. Cool. I was I was really pleased with that, and I can't wait to see more of these new puzzles come out and even replay some of the scenarios just to see what they've done differently. Yeah, I didn't realize they they were going in and, and adding new puzzles so that you could keep playing the same scenario and potentially come across different things. Yeah. Because I know the layout of the map and stuff would change, and, and your encounters might change, but I didn't realize they were doing that with the puzzles as well. Yeah, That's really so cool. it seems anyway. So well done, Fantasy Flight. That's we appreciate really cool. that. Jason Hex approved. <laughs> uh, well, since we're talking Fantasy Flight, I'll just do a quick update on my Descent, uh, my Descent campaign. Ah, yeah. So heroes are still winning. Okay. <laughs> we won the first three quests and then two things I didn't know about the game. First, Corey played this little encounter thing, Mm -hmm. and it was optional for the heroes. It wasn't part of the regular campaign. We could have not done it, but if we don't do it, Corey automatically got the prize for winning. Oh, no. So really, you don't have a choice. (laughs) You have to do it. And then if you win, you don't really get anything. I mean, we got like... 50 gold or 75 gold or something it wasn't we didn't get any experience or any although we did get the 50 gold and i think we ended up being able to purchase an artifact so still going pretty well still winning but it seems like by the skin of our teeth winning but at what cost but at what cost well then i learned something else i feel like the heroes have gotten really strong so you can search for treasure in the game yeah and there's normally like four treasure spots down on a map and normally you pick one up Mm -hmm. and it's like a potion it's like a health potion or a stamina potion and it's worth 25 or 50 gold but uh there is one card in the deck that is a chest and if you draw that you get to pick an item from like the shop you blindly pick it but those items can be worth you know 50 to 175 i think is the most expensive i've seen but in our first three games you've got this whole stack of maybe 30 cards Uh and you're only drawing three or four chances are not good you're gonna get one of those we got one in each of the first three games Ah, so we are very well equipped uh we are a very strong group of heroes and i was one i was talking to Corey about it he's playing the overlord Like, are we going to run away with it? Because I've never played, like, a full campaign. What I didn't realize is that it's not just quest one, quest two, quest three, and so on. The game plays out in different acts. And so at the end of our next quest, we'll switch to act two. And we're still going to have all the gear we've collected, 
but Corey's monsters are going to probably double in strength. Oh, wow. So it's kind of like a natural catch-up point. Huh. You know, in case the I don't know, I don't know what the heroes would do if they were losing every game. Though <laughs> I feel like they might get just crushed. Yeah, that's. I don't know. That's I don't. I don't know how how they balance it out. But uh, so we're still doing well, and that's 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 the campaign right now. Well, I guess so. while we're talking about campaigns, I'll just throw in my two cents about our Arkham campaign. Still going, still losing. Still, <laughs> we we are having trouble of, against Atlak Naka now, and Kyle has been fired from shuffling. Oh, really? Yep. He drew us. Uh, I think four elder signs in the first like three turns a few months ago. This is before we were having trouble, <laughs> but we were like, well, now Kyle can't shuffle, but we, we may have to rehire him again because Cause it doesn't seem to be, I mean, we've still got plenty of investigators left in the box. There's plenty of time. We are still, our best heroes are, are still unused. So, okay, well, good luck. Yeah, we're going to need it. No, I mean, we're almost on episode, like on my descent campaign, we are, the heroes are undefeated. Nice. Just so close though, except for one game where we just completely destroyed the rest have all been very close. Ah, crazy. Okay, we got, let's see, I think one more game on each of our lists. We do, and it's a good one. It is a good one. Uh, so I guess I'll take the lead? Sure. Uh, everybody knows I'm a big Zombie Side fan. Now, Zombie Side Fantasy will uh, will point out, too. Yes, specifically. Because you pointed out there's a new Kickstarter coming out April 3rd. My birthday. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> And then I looked at it, and it was—it's a sci-fi version. Yeah. So there's there's modern times, there's fantasy, and there is sci-fi. Sort of a theme for everyone. Yep. Trying to reach all the markets. But I got my copy of Zombieside Green Horde. Yes, lots of green minis, or so we thought. That yes, they seem to run out much faster than we would like them to. And you had never played Zombieside, so this, you got to play Green Horde with me. Yep. Uh, you, me, and Tani, another friend of ours. The three of us did the uh, Learner's Mission uh-huh. and then the first mission. And even the Learner's Mission was difficult. Yeah, yeah. Well, regular Zombieside has easy, medium, and hard missions. Yep. I was looking through the Learner's Mission for Green Horde is easy. All of the rest are classified as medium, which in zombie side can be very easy and winnable or impossible, kind of depending on how things, you know, shake out. Right. So just uh, we've talked about zombie side a lot on the show, but there are changes in Green Horde. Uh, I mean, you get new hero, but one, the uh, you get the trebuchet. Yes, the trebuchet. Giant death machine lets you launch a lot of dice at a lot of zombies or few dice at zombies, but they're stronger. Right. There's new terrain there are hedges that block line of sight and if nobody's got a line of sight on the space you're moving into when you cross you roll a die and on a one a zombie pops up Mm -hmm. and gets you and then there's water which slows you down drastically but sometimes you can use it to your advantage because you can get out of water at the banks and so can the zombies but you can also climb out of water at ledges and the zombies can't do that right so even though it slows you down, sometimes you're able to get away from them and force them to take the long route around. The zombies themselves are scary. They are. Because the the regular walkers now do two damage. Fatties now do three damage, which means they can kill you in one hit, just like the Abomination. So they have just gotten bigger and stronger. The runners are still one damage. You really have to stay on top of them, though, because things can kind of get out of control really quick oh they can when we won the second game (laughs) literally every miniature every every zombie in the box was not on the board but active like ready to come in the board when the game ended when we won there were three zombies left three 
That's it. Everything else was on the board. It was absolutely, utterly insane. And like, it, so we we had a play early on in game two, the the uh, first story mission, where mm-hmm. we were able to eliminate one of the spawn points, or just I guess just move yeah. it to somewhere else that we had already cleared. So what happens is when you kill necromancers, when when they summoned, they bring another spawn point with them. And when you kill them, your reward is you're able to remove any spawn point you want on the board. It doesn't have to be the one the necromancer brought. Right. So oftentimes, you'll leave like one space with two or even three zombie spawn tiles so that you can get rid of some over by a later objective. Exactly. And I'm confident that that is what won the game for us because we were able to, late in the game, use that former existence of a spawn point almost as a staging area yeah. for ourselves. Yeah. And uh, and the zombies just weren't fast enough to get to us. And we were using, you know, we dragged the trebuchet. You, you were convinced that the tre- dragging the trebuchet and sort of burning your action to do that. So you get three action points, right. and then as you level up, you can earn more. But it costs three action points to move your the trebuchet. Now, your hero moves with it, but I was thinking it also costs three points to fire the trebuchet. And I was thinking, why would you ever move it? Why wouldn't you just fire it all the time? Well, it only took me two rounds of an actual game to realize why you would move it. Because we were getting just swarmed. We ended up creating a team where one person would back it up and the other person would fire it or vice versa. Exactly. And then yeah. I guess it was one of my characters that was just kind of off trying to clear things ahead of the, the party. Yeah, well, we ended up splitting the party, which we needed to do, but that was so dangerous. Yeah, I was going to say, trust us, we know better, but yeah. boy, uh, there was no option. I don't know if we could have won, though, because if we hadn't split and we hadn't run out and grabbed the things, I don't know if we would have had the time. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, we, we were split, but we weren't that split. Not too far. Yeah, we were always within... A turn of catching up with each other. Yeah, yeah. It's not like we went across the board separate. But basically, the the first mission, not big spoilers. So you have to collect a certain amount of items, and then you have to get all the heroes on any one spot on the board. And that spot has to be clear to zombies. Right. And if you can do that, you win. And we ended up getting... We had six characters. We ended up getting five of them in one and then one person right next to them yeah and we had to spawn zombies what ended up happening was we had i think eight runners left yeah and then one fatty and that was it yeah the first card spawned six of the eight runners yep. and then the next card was the horde summon the horde which for those of you who have never played zombicide summon the horde stops the spawn the spot stops the spawn phase so no more beyond the horde will spawn right so normally when you're doing there's there's certain spawn points say there's three or four on the map Mm -hmm. and you just do them in order the same order every time spawn one spawn two spawn three spawn four in green horde every time you're doing a spawn most of the cards also have you add something to the horde pile and then occasionally i think there's six of them in the deck it will say summon the horde and all of those miniatures. At one point, we had, I think, a pile of, like, 15 zombies yep. in the horde. You can shoot at the horde with the trebuchet. We just didn't do it that often because we didn't have time. We were shooting at the board. It, it wasn't as effective because when when there's that many, even if you're rolling six dice, a lot of them yeah. don't die to one hit. Yeah, you, you're pretty much just aiming at walkers and then, you know, you follow you follow the regular um, targeting order. Yep. So, but when that horde comes out, you can end up dropping now this can be awful 
because you draw these cards when you open buildings too. Right. I mean, there's a potential you could open a door and all of a sudden there's 15 zombies in front of you. Right. That can be really bad. But the flip side of that is the horde cards stop spawning and we in that game i think we it actually happened to us once or twice where that would be the first card we drew or the first or second card we drew and either the horde would be really small or whatever but we basically got a free round yeah completely lucky and i mean that's and that's where the balance of zombie side comes in when they say medium it's kind of medium but it can be really easy or really bad right it's the same thing with the horde when you draw those horde cards, all of a sudden you could have, like I said, 20 zombies on the space in front of you. Game over. Right. Other times, if you can draw it and the horde is small or you can draw it early, you can basically go around without having a lot of zombies spawn. It took a miracle of leveraging, you know, a lot of skill on our part, you know, making sure mm-hmm. we were in the right places at the right time with yeah. a astonishingly lucky draw. Oh, incredibly. If anything but runners had come up in that last round, then we were out of zombies. Everything would have gotten a free move. Mm-hmm. Our whole team would have been caught yeah. and then we're just done for. We didn't have the, I don't know if we would have been able to fight them all. Right. I mean, we wouldn't have. We were not outfitted for that. Yeah. It came down to those six runners and not anything else. And then the horde card, which was empty because we had just unleashed the horde earlier, saved us. Yep, And that brings us kind of to our main topic today, really, (laughs) Uh, because we are talking about luck today. Luck today. Yay! (laughs) You know, luck, of course, being defined as some level of variance in a game and um, how that impacts both the complexity and excitement and endgame conditions of of a game mm. and and that experience in zombicide is like quintessential luck versus skill oh that was so lucky at the end <laughs> well we set ourselves up to be in that position though right i mean yeah because we, we were skillful enough with it to identify okay here here and here are the problem areas um this is making for great radio i'm pointing but to nothing <laughs> um we had to expect okay bad S could happen, but we have to hope we're drawing well here. You know, before before we went into that last draw phase, we were like, okay, what do we do if X? And yeah. we had contingency plans for almost everything, but none of them were as strong. And, and I'll be honest, I don't think any one of us predicted the, the horde arriving on the second draw there. On the second card? No, that was... That was that saved our bacon. It did. As it were. But that's the kind of variance that just throws the excitement level through the roof. That's what makes me want to come back to a game is when I can draw a card or miracle roll a die, that's that's a memorable gaming experience. Yeah, okay, okay, that's a good point. So a few years back at my bachelor party, we got to play a game of Bioshock Infinite. Yeah, I, I believe I arrived just at the tail end of that game. Yeah, that, it took longer than it should have. <laughs> uh, it was me and Tom versus Eric and Corey. Okay. At one point, so in that game, it, it's got your regular lines of defense mm-hmm. and you can build, but you can ride the rails. All of a sudden, you can pop a whole army in the back, you know, behind somebody and kind of do flanking maneuvers. So no place ever feels really safe. Oh. You know what I'm saying? Yep. But in order to ride that rail, if you roll a one, I think it is, your guy just straight up dies. He falls off it. Oh. And uh, the game was pretty neck and neck. And then Corey and Eric tried to attack Tom and I. And on one turn, six of their guys died because they rolled six ones. Oh, no. And it wiped out the army they were trying to attack with. We were able to crush them. It left the other spot undefended. And it was kind of like the tipping point of the game. 
when we were driving home later, Tom was saying he was kind of over dice combat. And I don't agree. Uh, for that reason you just said. Like, I love Kemet. I love Rising Sun. But I don't have victories in those games that you don't throw your hands up because the enemy just rolled five hits and you blocked all five with your defense. Or you needed a perfect double six roll and you got it to win the game. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Luck just creates those moments of unpredictability that just are so exciting. Right. I mean, it can go the other way too, though. So the worst dice rolling I've ever had in a game, back when I played minis games, I played Confrontation, and I was playing a Celtic army, and I was going up against goblins, and goblins are terrible and numerous, and they're a horde army. Yep. And the whole point of goblins is a lot of weak things, and they surround you. And then your one guy ends up fighting three or four goblins at a time really bad for you they might lose a little but you're gonna lose your guy right well i was able to maneuver my army within the terrain and whatnot to get all of my matches one-on-one or two-on-one in my favor right completely unheard of against the goblin army i rolled 15 dice that first round and i rolled 13 ones which were natural failures. No. 13? 13 out of 15. It was the most disheartening thing. At that point, you just have to laugh because that's just oh, so improbable. I wasn't laughing. I wasn't mad, but it was just so disheartening. <laughs> it was so disheartening. Well, the reason I say that is because uh, I've got a lot to talk about on this topic. Yeah. But uh, it, it's kind of that, it's sort of that Ameritrash versus Eurogamer type mentality. Yep. People say, will say, oh, there's absolutely no luck involved in this game. And usually it's meant as a good thing. But I'm not sure it's always a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I love a good, a good amount of luck. So one of the reasons that I got out of competitive gaming, i.e. Magic, was <laughs> I mean, the whole game of Magic, the whole game is... Yeah mitigating variants mm -hmm. uh and especially i mean the constructed scene is you know very much like okay my deck has these cards the job of this card is to draw that card and or to go dig for that card or to ramp right. into that Set card combos or yeah the, the, the point of, the, of of a lot of decks is to build into that one big game ending play mm -hmm. and it almost breeds a feel bad mentality now don't get me wrong i still have a an undying love for magic it is a great game but you just have to you know you you have to know what you're getting into i think also luck can be good too much luck can also be too much oh absolutely if you know what i mean i know hearthstone went through this phase and they had to make all sorts of nerfs and stuff to the game where it was a pirate meta and pirate warrior was running the meta and at one point there was this car card called patches the pirate yeah which was on 70 percent of decks on ladder huh at that point, the game basically became a coin flip. And if it's too much luck, a coin flip isn't fun either. No, it's it's really not. You can have games that are that luck is such an integral part though, and you can have yeah. luck that's or games that luck has got nothing to do with anything. Yeah. That'd be like a chess type game. Right. Chess is entirely skilled. Now, okay, I guess you could make the argument that what your opponent chooses to do is luck based, but if they're if, if you're playing against an opponent that is literally on exactly the same skill level as you, the element mm -hmm. of luck really just kind of goes right out the window. Yeah, you could argue it's it's pretty much non-existent. I mean, you could hope and play, pray that somebody misses something on the board, but even then you could chalk that up to skill, I guess. Right, you know, this the skill to overlook something. I mean, yeah, overlooking something is definitely a skill that, that can... Yeah, 
Well, that chess is an interesting one too because I was thinking about it, and and again, it goes back to that Euro when people are like, "There's almost no luck in this game," and you know, I like Kemet. It's one of my favorite games, and there is a little bit of luck. There's some god cards you can draw that you can add to your combat, but aside from that. It's mostly pretty straightforward. And it's one of those, oh, there's almost no luck, as said as a compliment. But I read this book called Characteristics of Games. Yep. And there's a really interesting part on luck in that. One of the things they talk about, and it kind of changed my perspective on luck in games, was that luck is a very good equalizer, you know? And, like, for example, if I sit down right now, mm-hmm. me knowing what I know, and I played the chess world champion, right. uh, I'd be lucky to survive 25 moves. <laughs> you know what I mean? Checkmate in 15. I'd get, yeah, I'd get slaughtered. But if I were to sit down and play a game with the Monopoly champion of the world, with its roll and move, you know, I know I know some basic early game strategies to mitigate. There is, again, some mitigation you can do even in a game like Monopoly, but I stand a pretty good chance of beating the world champion of Monopoly. Yeah. The lack of luck is good because people like the more skillful player to win. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of only really good for the more skillful player. <laughs> right. So one of the less luck-dependent games that I've played recently would, would have to be Fate of the Elder Gods. I mean, you're relying on the cards in your hand mm-hmm. uh, to make most of your plays. Now, sure, there is, I mean, there's there's dice involved, but, like, your actions are so much more intimately tied to where you choose to go on the board than they are in terms of the, the dice rolls. And also, the, I mean, the fact that the dice rolls only impact certain squares on the board should tell you where the, the influence of the dice comes from or goes to. Well, and that, and that kind of goes back to that, like, finding that middle ground. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, you've got chess with nothing. and the other hand, you've got... Hearthstone, which was a coin flip, the more skillful player might know how to use the cards they get better, or they might know how to mitigate bad hands better, that type of thing. But it doesn't eliminate the skill, but it also doesn't eliminate the luck. And that's one of the reasons I like dice combat. I like that sort of middle ground. I find I'm very comfortable in that area. Yeah, and but I mean, the other thing about, about variance, though, people recognize variance. We talk about communications theory from time to time, and the, the three tenets of a communication theory are comfort, surprise, and conclusion. Mm-hmm. Dice or card draw, random card draw, can provide both of those at the same exact time. Or the, both of the first mm. two. Actually, all three, really. They, <laughs> they, they're comfortable because everybody knows how to draw a card and everybody knows how to, draw, how, how to roll a die. They're 100% surprising because you never know what the result's going to be. But they also offer a, a sense of conclusion because you know what happens at the end of the turn. You either succeed or you fail. You know, we were talking about Arkham Horror today in, in, uh, with some of my students. And, like, I gave them just a sample scenario just for the sake mm-hmm. of the argument. And it was, you know, um, you have an ally and you're uh, the, a member of the Silver Twilight Gang or Lodge or whatever they're calling it comes up and says, hey, in exchange for your ally, we'll give you membership. Without knowing what you're going to have to do, you have to make a decision. If you know ahead of time that the the penalty to saying no is you have to make a fight minus three check, which means you're rolling three mm-hmm. less dice than your fight skill, that may influence your decision based on the probability of the dice rolling a five or a six. And you'll do that like in Battle Lore. Battle Lore is all dice combat. Right. Um, but like if you're going to bring archers, obviously there's a huge advantage to having archers in your army because the other team can't counterattack. But archers only hit on a one six. Right. So you're rolling three dice. 
You know what I mean? You're not going to be hitting all that often. Right. And it's just, it's, I guess, high risk, high reward. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, you, different systems call for different levels of, you know, let's let, let's look at that archer statistic. If I, if I apply that to Warhammer, a dwarf crossbowman, mm-hmm. which is a unit I know very well, is not necessarily just hitting on that six. Most of the time, sure, maybe it's similar. But if he's closer up, he has a better chance of hitting. And that's where the skill comes in, yeah, because that's where you mitigate the dice roll. Okay. And and I think, you know, we talk about, I mean, this podcast is fundamentally about game experiences. It's the combination of both luck and skill used simultaneously that gives you a memorable experience. When you, uh, you know, rolled all those ones, Uh, sure, it was part of the game. But I remember it. There was some level of desperation there. And I remember other ones too, though. I like I remember somebody sneaking in a little suicide bomber character and attack, getting to my team leader mm-hmm. on the very first or second turn of the game. But she had a special ability that let her ignore a certain damage and being able to roll that, and it just completely changed the outcome of the game. You know, huge moments that, as much as I love games like Kemet, I never pumped because I won a Kemet battle. Right. I kind of expected to win the Kemet battle. Now there is there's a little psychological. You're playing the different cards, and there is a little bit of luck involved. But I can usually, with some reasonable accuracy, know what's going to happen. Dice combat not always the same way. Right. One of the, one of the things I was reading recently is even though statistically, if you're if you're succeeding on a four plus, mm-hmm. or I guess it doesn't even matter. Statistically. You're going to roll a 4, 5, or 6 50% of the time on a 6-sided mm-hmm. die. What's the average on a 6? A 3.5, right? Something like that. People don't perceive it that way. Even though many gamers know perfectly well that that is statistically the odds, it doesn't mm-hmm. seem that way. No. I-, I wonder if it's like a chemical like brain thing. Well, probably loss aversion. Go on. Loss aversion is interesting. There's a, there was a study done where they asked all these doctors and they're like, they're like, there's a thousand people and everybody's sick. And if we release this medicine, give everybody this vaccine, we can save 800 of the thousand. Mm-hmm. How many people would do it? And like 80% of them said yes. And then they asked the same scenario, but in reverse. They said, we've got a thousand people sick. If we release the medicine, 200 people are still going to die. Do we release it now or wait for something better? And the number completely flipped. It went 80-20 the other direction. Everybody said, let's wait for the better medicine. So even though the odds were exactly the same... Not even the exact same. They asked the exact same people back to back. No. And they changed their answer. So the way you frame a situation can really impact the way we think about a situation. So if I go into a situation where it doesn't matter and I've got a 50-50 shot, eh, what the heck, I'll try it. But if I go into a situation where I've got a 50-50 shot and there's a whole lot riding on it, suddenly that 50-50 doesn't look so good. Doesn't look quite as good. Yeah. Doesn't look good at all. And I it's it's I wonder how much it's got to be loss aversion, I mean at least part of it. Yeah, how much of someone's willingness to to chuck dice is purely mental. Like if I do this what's going to happen kind of thing. But I think that's what makes gaming so fun and addictive is you get yourself into those situations where you're like, I don't know what to do. Like, the dice are against me tonight. You know, <laughs> D- D&D or RPGs, just a classic situation yeah. where, you know, last night even, for example, one of our players just could not roll anything but a natural one on a D20. Ugh, and and she was just critical fumbling <laughs> every which where. It, it took all we, could, all we could do to keep her on her feet. It, it just, that, that's what causes players to want to come back to the table. 
and play it again. There's other things though, because the time investment and winning. What do you mean? So, you know the game Eclipse? I know of it. it it's a big space opera. Yeah. And it's it's kind of like T.I. Light. Okay. Uh, not exactly. Not exactly from what I understand. But it's the same kind of, you build up a tech tree and you play different mm-hmm. races of aliens and you travel and just explore different planets and whatnot. Sure. But in that game, uh, I own it on iOS. I don't own the real thing. Okay. But it's like a two-hour game. And I remember one game in particular left a really bad taste in my mouth. So what happens is when you get into combat, everybody draws tokens. Like out of a bag or? Out of a bag. And that's your victory points. And I think they range between one and five. There's a lot more ones and twos. And then there's a little fewer threes and a little fewer fours. And if there are fives, whatever. But I remember I had a game where I just, I got, I found a tech that let me become a pretty offensive giant. And I went in and absolutely crushed the other side. And so I drew four tokens. Uh-huh. And the loser of that fight drew two tokens, the way it worked out. I don't remember the exact specifics, but I drew four ones. And my computer opponent drew a four and a three. Huh. And I ended up devastating, winning everything, and came out three victory points behind. And I really didn't like that. <laughs> yeah, that just leaves a foul taste. On the flip side, I've got a game... Uh, Dead Man's Doubloons, which I've got. I haven't had a chance to play yet. But in that game, you can race up your captains to the top of the island, and it's the same thing. You reach into a bag and you pull out a color gem, and depending on what gem you pulled out, you can go anywhere from positive 10 to negative 3 points. The difference is Dead Man's Doubloons is like a lighthearted, fun little filler game that takes 30 to 45 minutes. I haven't spent two or three hours invested only to be screwed by a pull from a dice bag right you know what i mean and to me that that makes a difference yeah i mean moving the story forward and you mentioned it last month with descent like one way or another the story moves forward Mm -hmm. and you can be rolling really really bad or drawing really terrible cards or whatever it is as long as you feel like you're accomplishing something by playing the game that's really the heart of the matter yeah, that, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because uh, the game Fallout, mm-hmm. the board game, based on the video game we talked about, and I really loved it, but one of the big criticisms it gets is that there are times when you, just because you don't get the right cards, you really don't stand a good chance of winning. Huh. And, and I've heard a lot of people say it's a game you play for the experience. And for me, being a character going through the, the wasteland, you know, reading those encounter cards is so much fun and I'm so engaged that I don't really care if I win or not. Because for me, it's about the journey, not the end. Or Eclipse, where I'm more... I mean, I'd like to win Fallout, but I like the game. Uh, Where Eclipse, the, the space opera theme is fine for me, but it's not as engaging for me. Right. So I don't... When I get those one VP and the other guy gets seven from losing, that leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Where the same thing could happen in Fallout and I'd be like, eh, them's the breaks. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and Alex and I have been known on many, many occasions to finish a game, immediately look up at each other and be like, I want to play again. I want to play again right now. Yeah. Even yeah. if there's not a chance that we have enough time. Yeah. That's exactly what causes that. I'm all over the place because then like Twilight Struggle, mm-hmm. very little luck there. I mean, there are a lot of games that aren't luck heavy. I'm a chess fan. Yeah. I've mentioned that on the show before. And so I I don't need tons of luck, but I'm also not going to, like Santorini 
is not a very lucky game at all. If right. it's it's kind of like a chess thing, but I love Santorini. But on the other side, you know what beats a perfect role in battle lore for victory? <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah, it's just, exactly. That is a heart pounding thing. Not knowing the outcome, just letting it all ride. And I guess on some level that brings us back to brutality because the combos in that game are so common mm-hmm. that it's just like you're still progressing the game forward no matter what card you draw no matter what move you decide to make. I wonder how many of those games I'm actually going to remember down the road. And I wonder what's going to cause me to remember or not remember a specific game. Because they aren't particularly luck heavy. They are and they're not. And we've established already that that it's luck plus skill that creates the memorable game experience. In Brutality, you don't roll dice. Right. If you're within range, you just hit. Yep. You just Uh, hit. I I think the memorable experiences from brutality come from one the awesome combinations you're able to pull off yep and that's going to change depending on your teammates and whatnot very situational where you find yourself where you find opponents that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. but the other thing is there is a little bit of luck because you are getting a random artifact at the beginning of the game Mm -hmm. and you are drawing those relic cards which were all over the place. One of them literally lit the board, half the board on fire for four turns. Yeah, that's true. And just was just burning everybody. And another one was like, move somebody two spaces. Yeah. So there, <laughs> there, there's some that are really good and some that are good. And they all, and they all seem useful and situational. Mm-hmm. But if we hadn't drawn the relic card we had drawn on our very first turn, we wouldn't have been able to pull off that awesome combo. Right. We would have been one one thing short. You yeah. know, we, we, we would have been missing that one element. And that that was pretty lucky. Mm-hmm. It sure was. Would we still have had a good turn? Maybe. Probably. You know, if the the other card we drew, if we drew a different card, would that have been even better? Possibly. Could have been. I mean I I haven't I deliberately didn't look when I was putting that prototype together at what was in the deck. In the deck. I just I didn't even look because I was like knowing that there's no dice involved, yeah. there's there's variants coming from somewhere, and I want that surprise to be an actual surprise. Well that's the thing too, because then then the more you play that, the more experience you're gonna have. You might be able to sort of look out for certain things. Knowing certain cards exist might affect your decision making. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because what ended up happening to us was we, we knocked the guy around and did all this shuffling, and we ended up in the corner because we thought we were protecting ourselves, and then the other team lit the board on fire. Right, and we did not uh, see that coming, and that was We did so not cool. see that coming at all. <laughs> uh, you know, we ended up winning that game. We did. But knowing, knowing that card exists, we may have played that a little bit differently. Yeah. Uh, maybe yeah. not. Maybe not. Maybe it's maybe too not. random. Maybe we would have played right into it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but that just shows you what the impact of luck is on the game experience. I feel really good about playing games with high levels of luck uh, and, and just looking for those memorable experiences. So for me, it, I think there's a couple of factors. Mm-hmm. One, I like dice combat. Yep. But I don't like the kind of luck like in Eclipse where after three hours I lose because I pull poorly from a bag. However, in a shorter game, like Dead Man's Doubloons, where I do the same thing, I'm okay with that. However, yeah. in a longer game, <laughs> where where I'm more into the theme, like Fallout, I'm okay with that. So I'm just like, I seem to be all over the place with luck. I love Santorini, I love chess, and I love that little dice game. I'm like, Angry Dice. Angry Dice, yep. <laughs> I mean, but, but that's what luck is all about, is like, yeah. if you add luck 
to literally whatever other component of the game, whether it's the theme, whether it's the skill, whether it's whatever it is. That's what creates a memorable game. That's what creates a favorite game. And that's why we come back to it. I think it's a really personal choice. I think it is. Because if somebody, I mean, if somebody were to say Santorini's my favorite game, I'd be like, I completely understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. That's an amazing game. For sure. I don't know. For me, I'll take a little bit of luck. Yeah, I will too. I, I'll play games without some, but I, I don't look as at a game having no luck as an absolute positive. Yeah. I mean, I think all games have some luck, but like when you say, when we say no luck, we mean like next to no luck. Yeah. Chess, Santorini, that yeah. sort of stuff. Dungeon Twister Prison. I don't have any other examples. <laughs> go? Well, with... <laughs> go. I don't know well, with that, go. sounds like we've wrapped up our main topic, so hopefully you enjoyed that for now. If you want to check out older episodes of the podcast, head on over to ghostshipradio.com. And to see some of our other work, facebook.com forward slash another letdown is the place to be for that. Adjacent Hex is published monthly by Ghost Ship Radio and is produced by Another Letdown Media. If you have some feedback for us, you can reach us on Twitter. My name is at D-E-N-O-N-C-Z-D, and Doug is at I-T-S-O-K-T-O-L-A-F-F, and our hashtag is hashtag adjacent hex. If you liked what you hear, be sure to subscribe and share with your friends on social media and in person. If you drop by the Ghost Ship Radio website, you can find a link to our Patreon. If you have something a bit longer to say to us, feel free to send us an email at theadjacenthex at gmail.com. From all of us here at Adjacent Hex, happy gaming, and we will talk to you next month. Killer Bunnies and the Quest for the Magic Carrot is a game where luck makes people furious. Play that one just for the experience. <laughs> I thought that game just made people furious hard stop. Oh, uh, I love it. This show is part of the Ghost Ship Radio Network. For more information, go to ghostshipradio.com.